I think when you layer on top of that, I think the sort of almost like the culture uh, struggle or the culture camp of modernity and secularization versus protecting traditional or conservative values, then not only are we saying that Jewish and democratic are two separate things, in a certain way, I think the democratic aspect of that has become part of the enemy. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. My last episode, The Rot at the Heart of Religious Zionism, used the story of a Hezder soldier's experiences in Hebron to highlight some very unfortunate tendencies in the religious Zionist world, most obviously racist attitudes towards Arabs. I also discussed the depressing reality that two of the three main religious Zionist parties were willing to seriously consider merging with Itamar Ben-Gvir's Otsma Yehudit party. As I pointed out in that podcast, Ben Gvir famously has a picture of Baruch Goldstein hanging in his house, the same Baruch Goldstein who shot and killed 29 Muslims at prayer in 1994. Several individuals suggested that the views expressed in the podcast were representative of a left-wing or perhaps even apologist approach. I strongly disagree. The belief that racism should be inadmissible is not left-wing ideology. The belief that people should not set cars on fire because those cars are owned by Palestinians is not left-wing ideology. And the belief that there are serious problems with ruling over a huge population of Palestinians is not left-wing ideology. A person can believe that the entire land of Israel, including the West Bank, is the divinely given heritage of the Jewish people, and also assert that in our currently unredeemed world, maintaining every inch of that land is not possible even if it remains our technical right. And of course, it doesn't mean that giving away land is the right move either. It just means that things are complicated and we must acknowledge that fact, complicated ethically and morally as well as politically. Life demands nuance. Simple solutions that ignore uncomfortable realities are usually simplistic and shallow, even as they're attractive on the surface. In any case, after the podcast dropped, my good friend Rabbi Pesach Wilicki called with some constructive and warranted criticism. He said that while I presented the problem, I left the bigger question completely unaddressed. Namely, why does religious Zionism include tendencies like these? What is it about religious Zionism, which ostensibly stands for engagement with the secular world and normal political activism, that sometimes pushes it toward racist attitudes? To answer these and other questions, he suggested that I speak with Daniel Goldman, an activist and, as he classifies himself, an extremist moderate. Daniel was the chairman of Gesher for eight years, where he worked with secular, religious Zionists, and Haredi Israelis to build a shared vision for the state of Israel. He was also the co-chair of World B'nai Akiva, the largest global religious Zionist youth movement from 2000 through 2015. Daniel Goldman, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum. It's my great pleasure. Before we begin our discussion, tell me about your activities with the Gesher organization where you served as chairman for many years. Sure. Uh, so Gesher has been around for nearly 50 years, was founded by uh, originally an American, Dr. Daniel Tropper. And Gesher really is what the name says, which is a bridge. And what we're trying to do in many different ways is to uh, connect uh, between 
secular, religious, and Haredi people in Israel, uh, whether really the mission statement is that we are all living in the same neighborhood, the same country, and we're all going to be here in the future, and therefore finding ways to live together in greater harmony, this is the mission statement. Certainly an important goal and something that's definitely needed here in Israel. And that leads us to what we're actually talking about. And this podcast, as you know, is a follow-up on my previous one. I talked about the rot that is developing in religious Zionism. First of all, do you think that's too strong a term? I'm throwing that out there like it's a reality. And first, I want to know what you think about that. I call this rot, this racism, which seems to be endemic to certain segments. What do you think? Is that really true? I'm a kind of extremist moderate. So rot is not necessarily the word that I would use. But I think there are some very concerning under-the-surface trends, which are now coming to the fore, and they definitely need to be talked about. So what are those under-the-surface trends? So, you know, we can look at it as a um, ideological discussion, we can see it as a political discussion, but they all really come down, I think, from a religious point of view, as people part of the religious community, is how does our relationship to people who are, in, in this particular case, not Jewish, um, or Arabs or Muslim, etc. How does that relationship reflect in a sovereign Jewish country? And what does that mean for us as religious Jewish people and how we uh, deal with them? And are, are we looking uh, in a kind of humanistic uh, approach to that? Are we looking at a purely a power uh, approach to that? Are we seeing it as a, a more in the philosophical that you know Jews are good and basically Arabs are bad or evil and therefore the things that we do really need to serve our own purposes. I think those are the frameworks that we need to uh, look at it. It isn't just about Naftali Bennett and Rafi Peretz and Itamar Ben-Gvir. It's what those trends are representing in terms of the deeper questions within our identity. So you asked a lot of questions. So now, Daniel, I'm asking you, what are the answers to those questions? And let me try and make that a little bit narrower. Does the religious Zionist community look at our relationship from your perspective, both as an activist and as somebody who is involved with Gesher, do we too often in the religious Zionist community look at our relationships with Arabs from an exclusively power-based perspective? Or do we also look at it from a humanistic perspective? What's the general trend that you see? Okay, so I, I think that one of the original sins that we suffer from, ironically, we talk about it a lot at Gesher, but it, it I think it has its own problems, is that we are constantly referring to Israel as a Jewish democratic country. Unlike kind of with the Choshamor, where we are taught actually that in reality it is one concept, but is split from a practical perspective. Right. We've seen the, the Jewish and democratic aspects of Israel as a dialectic. So it's either democratic or it's Jewish. And what is, I think part of what has happened is that we've given over to the uh, democratic, if you will, side of life, the issues which relate to humanistic approach to uh, uh, to other human beings, whether they be other Jews or indeed non-Jews, and and therefore the Jewish piece of Jewish demo Jewish and democratic really has nothing to do or say about that relationship, and into that vacuum has entered, I think, the power discussion, the the sort of mehutani. Jews are like this and non-Jews are like that. So let me understand better what you're trying to say. Do you mean that as opposed to seeing Jewish democracy as a single concept, we make some sort of split, almost a paradox. You could be Jewish and democratic. Go figure that. At any given point, we're trying to figure out, are we this or are we that, rather than seeing them as a Jewish democracy mixed together, intermingled into a single entity, which I assume you would advocate. Absolutely. And I, I think it is a more complex position to try and create a synthesized Jewish democratic idea rather than either Jewish or democratic. 
And I think when you layer on top of that, I think the sort of almost like the culture uh, struggle or the culture camp of modernity and secularization versus protecting traditional or conservative values, then not only are we saying that Jewish and democratic are two separate things, in a certain way, I think the democratic aspect of that has become part of the enemy. Let me first, before we get, I want to understand what you mean by the enemy, but first, what does Jewish democracy mean for you? Okay. Talking about intermingling them, what does that mean exactly? Because Mayor Kahana, for example, we'll speak about his ideology in a bit, he used to talk about how they're fundamentally at odds with each other. Yes. How do you see them fundamentally working together? So ahead of our conversation, as opposed to just what I think about it, I try to sort of have a look and think and, and see what, what is on the uh, bookshelf. Mm-hmm. And the first place that I wanted to go was to Rav Aaron, okay, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein of Blessed Memory. And in his book uh, of, of Conversations with Chaim Sabato, he doesn't refer to this directly, but I think something that he says there is very pertinent to what we're talking about. He talks about Jewish humanism, which isn't exactly Jewish democracy, but if you will, Jewish democracy is Jewish humanism in a sovereign situation. Right. Okay, Jewish humanism can happen everywhere. Jewish democracy can only happen when we're in power. Jewish democracy might be a political application of Jewish humanism. Exactly. So let's talk for a minute about what he considers to be Jewish humanism. I think it's it ought to be self-evident and obvious that man created in the image of God, okay, Adam Elokim, this is the fundamental axiom for Jewish humanism. Okay, that not only do we see that every person is unique, but he has within him the spark of divinity. Okay, this then informs everything else that we think about with respect to uh, Jewish humanism. The book is Hebrew, but he refers to a, uh, an old article that he wrote for Torah Matter, which he based his words on in, in the book. He said that, first of all, um, there is humanism in not just the Jewish religion, but also in Christianity and Islam. But he also says that there haven't been many great role models for this humanism within a religious context for a very uh, long period of time. And as such, it also has a fairly weak hold within the religious uh, community. Mm -hmm. So you need to fight hard to be bold about speaking about Jewish humanism as a concept. It's, it's, it's marginal. Right. But for him, it's absolutely fundamental. And what does it mean? Well, it means treating other people as if they have the spark of divinity within them, which means every person has uh, rights, every person has needs to be treated with respect, not because it's good for me to do so, because it's the right thing for me uh, to do so. It, it then informs not only on an individual basis, but how a majority ought to deal with a minority and whether a minority ought to have his own rights within a sovereign power, in this case, in our case, the Jewish sovereign power. So what does that mean for Christians and Muslims or Arabs within a Jewish state? It means that they're entitled to have freedom of expression, freedom of religion, you know, all of the protections that we ought to give ourselves, we ought to extend those to um, other people. But I think it goes even further than that. Let's bring it right into today's political debate. Annexation has become an incredibly uh, well-spoken-about concept. Within the religious community, I think it is assumed that you can do annexation of the of Judah, Shomron, Judah, Samaria, West Bank, whatever you want to call it, without giving full democratic rights to the people who live there. I think that's anti-Jewish. And I agree with you, and I want to get to that idea right now, because you mentioned before that often in the religious Zionist community, democracy is seen as the enemy, rather than having it work together in Jewish humanism, a Jewish democracy, the way Ravar and Lichtenstein's that's all describes. So 
What do you mean by it's the enemy? Do you mean annexation or are you referring to something even more than that? I think it's a great deal deeper than that. I think that uh, let's just now step back maybe further in history. We have a constant battle, let's say 200 years between responses that Jewish people have and modernity. And can we live together with modernity or do we have to separate away from it? And this goes in phases and in waves. But as modernity has strided forward more aggressively, and some would say more progressively, uh, and in a more extreme way, and so the response to that secularization or modernization or now post-modernization itself becomes a more reactive... Um, insularity? I think protective, but yes, it turns into an insularity. Now, if I'm in a uh, fight or flight mode against modernity it is very difficult for me to create then a nuanced position around elements of that modernity, which may be genuinely overlap with my Jewish identity. So if on the one hand, I'm trying to educate my flock, whether I'm a rabbi or an educator or even a political leader, that we must protect ourselves from the terrible uh, influences of modernity, whether that's around LGBT or feminism or universalist ideas, which uh, go against the, the Torah, it's very hard for me to say, oh, that bit of modernity is okay. Mm -hmm. And so when I say democracy becomes part of the enemy, it's the sort of encampment of everything to that side is something we need to defend against, and everything on this side is something we need to uh, protect. And once we have the dichotomy of Jewish and democratic, I'm obviously on the side of Jewish, and therefore democratic values, those humanistic values, the universal values, cannot be part of my religious identity. I've noticed in the religious Zionist community too often exactly the same phenomenon that you just mentioned. The idea that people seem, I don't mean everybody, there's certainly plenty who don't think this way, but I've seen too many for me to be comfortable with people who see annexation as a valid goal in the sense of, we'll annex the West Bank and we will then just not grant citizenship. What's the big deal? Either they'll have an unrealistic view and they'll say, sure, we'll grant citizenship, but all the numbers are wrong. It'll be no problem. And they're actually a tiny number of people and all the, all the population figures and demographics are lies. I'm not willing to stake our future on that assumption, which I don't believe anyway. But even more concerning, aside from burying one's head in the sand, is the idea of, well, what's the big deal? We are simply going to annex that area. We will grant them permanent resident status forever. A few can apply for citizenship, assuming they renounce every right to their own nationality and national identity, all of which is anti-democratic, all of which is not realistic. This is essentially a way of saying we're going to do something which is going to make us literally a South Africa-style state. I'm not going to say apartheid because I once said that, and apartheid has its own connotations, but it will make it politically similar to what black South Africans went through, and the same thing would be true for Palestinians. All of the canards that are currently leveled against Israel would then be seen as true and correctly. What are people thinking? Where is this coming from? How are people so willing to simply throw out values which, as Rav Aaron Lichtenstein says, are part of Jewish tradition? Salam Elohim. So um, life is about navigating competing values, okay? And, and that's a complicated uh, business. So let's, let's again... Are so you saying people aren't nuanced? <laughs> I'm saying it's difficult to be nuanced. Um, many people are, but it, it, it comes as a shock. It's yeah. quite difficult. Let's look at a couple of seminal events that have happened over the last sort of 30, 40 years and, and see how that has affected the, the very thing that you're talking about. It's impossible to have this discussion without considering the pre and post 1967 uh, events, 
the change that religious Zionism went through, again, pre and post-1967, with the rise of Merkaz Arav and the Eretz Israel agenda. The Gush Emunim. The Gush Emunim, etc., which has become more or less all-consuming. I want to open a parenthesis and say that if you look sociologically, I think, at the religious community, the religious Zionist community, I think that the vast majority of them are right-wing and happen to be religious. Mm-hmm. I don't think they necessarily have thought religiously about their political opinions, but it does make them relatively parav to receiving what the ideologues are necessarily going to say, and therefore the, the more strident ideologues are going to have great sway. So I, I don't think that necessarily we're talking about the 100% of the religious community that are driving their political ideas or voting patterns because of some deep theological concepts. But the ideologues are definitely uh, uh, pushing themselves in that uh, direction. So if you raise the importance of Eretz Israel, okay, and not giving back a single centimeter, and the land is sanctified, and obviously you play into that the... Uh, pre-messianic or even messianic um, ideas that that brings, layer onto that a philosophy that says, you chose us because we are special and better rather than we have a responsibility. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you begin to have a kind of cocktail which can justify a great deal of other behaviors, which when you sort of peel it all back, doesn't really fit with but when you put, well, Eretz Israel is at stake. Everything else goes, I think, to the uh, to the sidelines. And you're not asking everybody to get rid of their theological views or their halachic views that Eretz Israel Hashlema, the complete land of Israel, is a genuine value. The problem is that we have competing values and values clarification, figuring out which value takes precedence at any given time means nuance. I've told my own students in the past that taking any one value and choosing it above every other value at every single time is essentially the definition of idolatry. I think we would 100% agree, which is a great segue. I, I, I brought also this uh, quite an interesting book by uh, Daniel Hartman, son of uh, David Hartman, who was uh, himself a, uh, a Talmud Muvak of Rav Soloveitchik. And he has a, a fascinating, I think a quite challenging book, whose title is Putting God Second. Uh, the thesis of the book is, if you want to serve God, make sure that he doesn't come first every single time. Hmm. And why is that relevant to our uh, debate? Early on in the book, he warns the reader that recruiting God into your political philosophy will often end up justifying evil acts in the name of heaven. Uh And he said, politics we should keep in the realm of politics, which ought to be pragmatic. There ought to be values upon which we base our political decisions. But when we recruit got into that uh, equation, we are dramatically hiring the risk of doing things which may end up being immoral. So by putting God first, in reality, you may end up putting God second. I think that is the paradox of religious Zionism, where on the one hand, we do want it to be based around our religious beliefs, but we don't want it to be hijacked by the theology. Abraham Lincoln was quoted during the Civil War when asked if God is on our side. He goes, I don't know. I certainly hope we're on his, though, (laughs) which I think is essentially what you're quoting Rabbi Hartman is saying right now. Very similar indeed, yeah. A lot of what you say in terms of these extremist ideologies reminds me of the political parties specifically headed by Moshe Faglin and Ben Gvir. And it truly bothers me to see people reading his platform, which I have looked at 
in fact, quite carefully, and seeing this as a viable political mandate, a viable political program, when in fact, aside from being anti-democratic, it would simply cause the state of Israel to cease to exist from my perspective, along with the theological problems and the political problems involved in allowing these ideologies to enter our camp, I think there's also a simple lack of political pragmatism. People who go for these kinds of programs may not even understand that they can never, ever be implemented. And if they were implemented, it would literally mean the end of the state of Israel. Do you agree with that statement? Um, let's talk about political pragmatism and the religious Zionist community. Whichever side of that argument you take, I think that the last six months or, or, or almost whichever period you've taken over the last sort of 10 to 20 years has proven a lack of pragmatism. And indeed, you have these uh, um, splits between political parties on things that the regular person in the street can't even understand what the difference is. So, for example, you have Smotrich now not sitting with Itamar Ben-Gvir. And if you ask the man in the street, what really are the differences between the fundamental opinions of Smotrich and Ben-Gvir? I don't think anybody will actually be able to tell the difference, which suggests that this is not about pragmatism, but some sort of Stiebel style of I'm not going to be in your shul, you're not going to be in my shul. And I think it reflects a great deal of the internal religious politics of the religious community. So on, on the pragmatism, I think they are, you know, if you look relative to, for example, the Haredi politics, okay, which are probably the, the mirror opposite in terms of their pragmatism, they are super pragmatic. Mm-hmm. Okay, the religious Zionists are so tied up with ideology and, and in some ways, Every single nuance of that ideology, you can't get, you know, you have two religious Zionists together, you may have three religious parties. So I think they're definitely, irrespective of the ideology, there is a lack of pragmatism. From the point of the... And that goes even to the top. Yes, absolutely. I think, ironically, the person who is trying to or has tried to bring a level of pragmatism to that uh, camp has been Naftali Bennett who we'll come back to, I think, maybe later, because in a certain way, what he did with Netanyahu uh, just prior to the uh, registration of the lists for this election, he's potentially part of the good news, actually, here. Mm -hmm. Particularly because he comes from a, I'm a right-wing religious person, and I'm not really deeply theological about it. Right. So I think by him saying... We draw a red line at Otsmai uh, Udit and uh, Itabar Ben-Gvir. I think he's made a statement, which we'll see what happens in the election itself. If that proves to pull more religious Zionists towards him to vote for him and less to Itamar Ben-Gvir, then maybe he's put a, a, a line in the ground, which you know may put a stop to some of the trends that we have seen more recently. But let's talk about for a sec- where the extremism has come into the politics. We know that Kahana was completely mukta, all right? He was well, outcast. He was outcast, okay? In the traditional mafdal, right. he was an absolute outcast. And I'm not just going back 50 years. I'm going, you know, Zvulun Hammer and even Zvulun Orlev, etc. Daniel Hershkovitz, I don't think that the even a, a technical block would have been something that could have been thought about even 10 years ago. But yeah, I'll just tell our listeners, for those who don't remember... Mayor Kahana was voted into the Knesset back in 1984. He got one seat. Back then, there was no minimum threshold. As long as you got a seat, you were in. He got one seat. He was completely ostracized by the entire Knesset, every party. The other 119 members would not do anything with him. And then after he was not voted in the next time, or really before the next elections, Israel raised the threshold so that he wouldn't get in. Kach, his party, was banned. And essentially, he was considered, as you said, completely muksa or more. Um, The... Things to look out for, though, during that intervening period are 
people like Dovlio, Ravlio, mm-hmm. okay, who may be considered to be relatively extreme, but it certainly wasn't an outcast of the religious Zionist community. He was the head of a major yeshiva. He was the rabbi of Kirat Arba. Right. He was potentially a candidate to be the rabbi of the city of Jerusalem. Certainly an outspoken ideological voice who called Baruch Goldstein, Okay, the guy who perpetrated the massacre in Hebron in 1994, he called him a tzaddik. He he raised him to the level of a saint. Okay, and there's a direct line that is you can draw between that and Ben Gvir with the picture of Goldstein in his lounge front room. By the way, in the early years, Lior would not go to the annual celebration of Merkahana's Yotzite, but in recent years, he's one of the main speakers. Uh, Arav Mordechai Eliyahu, who was a chief rabbi of Israel and considered to be one of the most important leaders of religious Zionist community. And tremendously respected across communities. Both in the uh, Haredi community and in the uh, religious Zionist community. He was at Meir Kahana's funeral, and if I remember correctly, it is worth checking, he may have even given a hesped. Okay? Now, he may have gone there because he felt that because he was murdered, he felt the, the obligation to go. We can't read into his mind why he went there, but the kind of stamp, the kosher stamp that that gives, and we're talking about when he was killed, that says, okay, if it's okay for Arav Mordechai Eliyahu, it's obviously an acceptable ideology. By the way, even if I disagree with it, it is now to a certain degree within the camp. So the seeds of the acceptance of Kahanist ideology as a mainstream political ideology within the religious Zionist community is not a year, it is not two years, but it is a uh, a much longer uh, process, I think, which has kind of seeped into the uh, community. Well, you said something interesting. You said Kahanist ideology. And I want to ask you if you did that deliberately, because there's a difference between Mayor Kahana is Muktza and Kahanism is Muktza. I would tend to think, and this has happened in other contexts as well, that very often certain philosophies can be brought in once the founder of that philosophy is frankly out of the picture the founder of a given philosophy might have certain problematic elements to his personality or to his past or to his history. Once that person has been pushed aside, however that might happen in this case because he was shot, now the ideology can seep in because the founder, who is a problematic person, isn't part of it. Do you think that's true here? Because um, people will no longer say, oh, I'm a Kahananik. That's still pretty outside the pale. Right. But his ideas are now part of other parties. Yeah, let us bear in mind that although Ben Gvir was extremely young at the time, his his uh, partners in Natsma Yehudit, uh, Gopstein, Marzel, and uh, Benari are absolutely sworn Kahanists. Right. This is not a abstract reflection of a man's ideology returning in some other format. This is pretty direct, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I, I would agree with you that I think the way that he left this world, okay, uh, he was assassinated or murdered, undoubtedly uh, softened people's opinion that, well, he, you know, we must, a, a little bit like what happened with Gandhi. You're referring, of course, to Rechavim Zevi, the Israeli politician from Oledet, right wing, who was assassinated in a Jerusalem hotel. Okay. Gandhi was also very marginal in Israeli politics and has ended up, you know, there are town squares named after him. Right. And again, partly, I think, because of the way that he exited this world, it raised him up to being something much more mainstream than he was previously. Some people might argue that the rise of Kahanist philosophy in the religious Zionist world parallels a rise in Islamist anti-Israel philosophy in the Arab parties. It would seem to me that 30 or 40 years ago, positions that are now advocated by the Arab parties in the Knesset would have been completely beyond the pale, completely unacceptable. A lot of what we hear some Arab Knesset members say is 
effectively Hamas and Islamic Jihad propaganda. Once upon a time, that would have been outlawed by the Israeli Supreme Court, and now it's allowed in. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that what we're seeing now in the religious Zionist world, allowing some of these previously fringe philosophies to penetrate, is a reaction to that same phenomenon happening on the other side? And people might even argue it's important we have a counterbalance to it. So I'm not sure what is the chicken and what is the egg here. I do see a great deal of dialogue if you look at social media and, and, and you know, debates between whether it's uh, journalists or political leaders, etc. The sort of uh, scoring and counter scoring of, well, if it's okay for them, it's okay for us type of uh, logic. I think that that is definitely uh, come into it. I think also as the perception of Islamic fundamentalism has, has grown potentially as a threat, whether it is or is not a threat is a different question, but potentially is a threat. I think that people feel that it is therefore more justified to take a more robust position in terms of the ante uh, to that. But I, I don't think that that in and of itself can justify positions that, for example, we saw a couple of years ago when the now minister at the time, Javier uh, Knesset, Batal Smotrich, said that he felt that it would be acceptable for his wife uh, to give birth in a hospital and to demand that she not be next to an Arab woman in, in the ward, right. in the hospital. Right. I don't think that that's, that c- can in any way be justified by saying, well, the Chavrei Knesset of the Rishima Mishutefet are terrible people. Right. As a standalone opinion, that has to be outcast, and it is not. So let me move on to something else which you mentioned. You talked about the pragmatism of the Haredi parties. And obviously that might be their most obvious characteristic, how incredibly pragmatic they are. Before we went on the air, you sent me an article from a Haredi news site, and I had heard rumors of the same, asserting that Moshe Gafni of Yadut HaTorah Mulchedet, the United Torah Judaism Party, which is the Ashkenazi Haredi political party in Israel, was in talks with Ben Gvir to cooperate in whatever. Obviously, they're not going to merge together. Their philosophies are completely dissimilar, but to work on whatever projects together to assure each other of success in various endeavors. So yes, we talk about the Haredi political parties as being extremely pragmatic, but the assumption is that that pragmatism is backed by a level of idealism. And if their idealism allows for the entrance of Ben Gvir into the political process, I'm not going to say I'm disillusioned because these things don't surprise me anymore, but I find it upsetting and very, very disappointing that this is not considered beyond the pale, even for pragmatic political parties in the Haredi world. So that's a whole other podcast, but let's try and unpack it a little bit. Haredi politics is definitely characterized by its pragmatic nature. And actually, ironically, um, you would more expect Gaffney uh, and UTJ working in the Knesset with the Arab parties in cooperation on certain uh, areas and ideas than you would necessarily with uh, Ben Gvir. However, and here I think probably Gaffney is, is fully aware that whilst historically, and Rav Shach certainly the magnificent leader of uh, Haredi politics and Haredi Judaism of the previous generation, led a, a line that said, we do not get involved in security questions. We, you know, the, the value of life is, is more important than the value of power and the value of land. And although he didn't go so far as Rabbi Vadi Yosef with his psakalacha around uh, giving up uh, shtachim, historically, the leadership of the uh, Haredi politics was either parav or left pragmatically left-leaning. And as you said, that applies to both Ashkenazi and Sephardim. Yes. However, 
the reality of the sociology of the people who vote for them is dramatically different. That is to say, particularly within the Shas voters, but I think it's also true within uh, Degel HaTorah and Agudat Yisrael, the two uh, components of United Torah Judaism, the average voter for the Haredi parties is substantially more right-wing than the leadership. And again, I want to try and be careful not to be judgmental about this. If we talked about Rav Aaron before and the sort of marginal ideas of Jewish humanism, there are no ideas of really Jewish humanism within the Haredi or, or almost no ideas of Jewish humanism within the Haredi ideology. Mm-hmm. That, that is almost expunged partially because, and again, this is neither a judgment nor a justification, they still hold the ethos of an us versus them type of mentality, which they very much brought with them from the persecution of Europe, etc., which they've tried actually to maintain, and now is part of their political ethos, uh, but there's very little room for sympathy or empathy for the other. And sometimes that will be the, for the secular other, right. but just as easily it could be for the Arab other. I was going to say that, to me, one of the big problems with these Haredi political parties, UTJ in particular, is the fact that it looks at the other not only as the non-Jews outside of Israel, which itself contains its own problems, as we mentioned, but the other also includes everyone who's not part of their voting bloc. That is clearly an issue, um, which they have to contend with. But what, in, for, for our purposes, what it's created, I think, and, and Gaffney's reaching out to Ben Gvir is a, a way to shore up his right-wing voter uh, group who may consider, because of the treatment that Ben Gvir had, because of the fact that he was pushed out by Bennett, but they may consider that if he's going to get a sympathy vote, he may be concerned to lose that vote to uh, Ben Gvir. I see that as a, a kind of political response to that. One of the most concerning elements of this entire story for me is the very fact that our prime minister, Prime Minister Netanyahu, has sort of been the man behind the scenes trying to push Ben Gvir into the religious Zionist parties or now perhaps into the Haredi parties. In other words, it's not just that fringe ideology has entered religious Zionist discourse as a mainstream way of thinking, but that it's acceptable even in the secular Zionist world to allow this to happen. Meaning, Benjamin Netanyahu, whatever we say about him, is a masterful politician. He is a person who really understands Israeli voting patterns, maybe better than any Israeli politician in history. If he is not worried about openly advocating Ben Gvir joining these parties, which means he's saying, yeah, he's acceptable. What is he telling us about Zionism in general and about not just religious Zionists, but Zionists, people who are willing to vote for Likud in general? To me, that's what's really scary. Without getting into the immediate politics of that, I think the context of of, uh, Netanyahu's precarious position politically is what's driving him to this outspoken uh, position, which he himself, I don't think, would have dreamt of enunciating maybe 10 years ago. Oh, I certainly agree. But what I mean is that... So I, I don't that... think... I, I, it is, in my opinion, it is ultimately purely cynical. Uh, but the, the, the damage is no less. Right. I, I, I don't think it has anything to do with ethos or, or Zionism or his, his values. It is 100% around my political future is at stake. And therefore, I will do absolutely... Anything, and, and in this case, the ends completely justify the means. The danger is exactly the same. Well, I agree with you. I know this is a cynical maneuver on his part. But what I mean is that the fact that he can make the cynical maneuver and not worry that people are going to have a backlash against him for doing so, that's the problem I have. I don't disagree. Let's talk about some good news. Yeah. You mentioned Bennett before. Sure. I hope that this is true. 
Are Bennett's red lines because of an authentic moral and ethical position, or is he also just a cynical politician? So this was exactly the conversation I had this morning on the way over with uh, Yair Ettinger from uh, Cannes, the, uh, the public broadcaster who, who follows this very closely. He said, really, the good news is around Bennett, and we should consider that for a minute. And he said, kind of me, Manav Sheikh. All right. Let's say for a second, let's go for the, the really positive, which is Bennett decides ideologically, this is the red line that I will not cross. And by the way, he said this not to Bengvir, he said this to Netanyahu. Okay, which is the kind of maybe positive contra to Netanyahu sensing his position of political danger and mm -hmm. therefore bringing Ben Gvir in. Bennett says, no, this is a red line. And if that is from an ideological perspective, he deserves all of the credit uh, for saying so. But he said, let's just assume he's another politician for a moment. And Bennett is a pragmatist. And let us hope that the equation that Naftali Bennett made when he decided that this was going to be his red line is based on either his idea or surveys, polls, which says, actually, I can benefit by turning Benkvir again into an outcast. And then we will see at the election whether or not, indeed, that has pushed more people to Benkvir because, well, what does Bennett know about anything? And we're going to vote for Benkvir anyway. Or indeed, it will sway to a certain degree people to say, ah, okay, Bennett said he's not going to be with Ben Gvir, therefore I, I can continue to support him. I, I agree with that line. So whether it's a purely political move or an ideological move, I think it's good news. I like to hear that. That's a nice way of coming close to the end of this podcast. Let me ask you one more question, Daniel. Let's talk about the problems that exist within the religious Zionist community, this inherent racism, which allows people to let people like Ben Gvir be a part of our community, be a part of our political and even religious discourse. What would you say people can do, those who are concerned, to try and uproot it, to get rid of it? It's so part of the way religious Zionist world and people think. How do we get rid of it? How do we undo this? So I will maybe then end with a, a paraphrase of a speech given by a um, senior U.S. Air Force officer who's the head of the Air Force Colleges in, in the United States. And there had been a, um, a racist incident in one of the uh, colleges on one of the campuses. And he gathers together all of the students, all of the cadets and all of the staff and all the teaching staff and everybody into a huge hangar. And he gives a long speech. I won't go through the whole thing. But the thing which struck me the most uh, powerfully, which I think is the thing which I take into both into Gesher and everything else that I try and do is you cannot find a bad idea with the same bad idea. So defeating Ben-Gvir and Kahanism is not by recruiting the ideas of Kahanism for your benefit, but the way to defeat a bad idea is you must promote a better idea. The only way in the end for the religious Zionist community to defeat racism is to have an ethos which can replace that. It is not good enough just simply to say, you're no good because you're a uh, racist and therefore we want to send you out of the community. I have to provide a replacement for that, something which is better, so a higher cause or a higher idea. And I think that is the challenge for everybody who sees the uh, danger of these ideas coming into the religious community is with what do I replace it? What is the big idea that I can come and say, don't be like this, be like this? Daniel, one of the best parts of doing this podcast for me is the opportunity to meet and talk with people I've always wanted to meet. Daniel, you certainly are in that category. So thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. 
Remember to subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast provider. If you like this podcast, please help us out by sharing it on Facebook or Twitter. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com, which has been recently revamped for lots of great podcasts, including The Orthodox Conundrum, Intimate Judaism, The Francisca Show, Chochmat Nashim, and much more. When you're there, make sure to sign up on our new Patreon page, where for as little as $2 a month, you can gain access to premium content like Ask the Rabbis, you can get excellent merchandise, and more. I'm Scott Kahn. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>